Get a second thumb and we'll be recording. All right, we're recording. Good deal. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Join me, if you would, in turning off your noise-making devices. There we go. Now, if I receive a phone call, it'll simply buzz in my pocket and you guys won't have any idea. Reason for which, of course, is to ensure classroom discipline. We don't want to be distracting to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They came here today to hear the word of God and they want to be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. Um, They're probably under some angelic conflict at the moment. They want the word of God to strengthen them and uh, they don't need your uh, Weird Al Yankovic ringtone to uh, diminish the edification that uh, would otherwise take place. All right. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Chapter 10. We're in the second half of the chapter, verses 22 through 39. And um, episode 18 in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus Christ. And um, in between verse 21 and 22 is a significant departure where you go into the Gospel of Luke and you start viewing other chronological events. And since we are doing a harmony of the Gospels and studying uh, the life of Christ in a sequence, then we have done just that. We have... Uh, departed from John 10 after verse 21, and we have gone and done all the other episodes in between, mostly in the Gospel of Luke, and then we've come back for this episode, episode 18, and uh, have picked up the context in verse 22. Now, the advantage, of course, to a sequential study, a chronological study, is that you get the overall flow of the life of Jesus and his ministry and, and the various messages that he delivers, The downside is that you can very uh, readily miss uh, a larger picture of what is being given in the written text in the the aspect of John 10. And so last week we tried to remedy that a little bit by showing you how the shepherding passages in the first part of the chapter, I am the good shepherd, the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and and, uh, being on guard against the wolves and sheep clothing and all the things there, You cannot lose sight of those because they uh, directly impact your hermeneutic. They they directly impact your understanding of the verses that follow. So when we see about um, my sheep hear my voice uh, in verse 26, you do not believe me uh, because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You cannot properly understand those verses if you're ignoring the good shepherd information that comes in the uh, first half of the chapter. So hopefully last week we did a good enough job tying together the two halves of the chapter where you'll understand that your hermeneutical control for our passage today comes in an episode we actually handled weeks or even even months ago. All right, now that being said, we are examining the claims that he makes here in verses 25 through 30. Uh, culminating in I and the Father are one. And then we're moving on to verses 31 through 39, where Jesus does not back down. Uh, They did not like the statement of unity uh, from verse 30. They picked up stones to stone him. And uh, so we're going to see from verse 32 that he doesn't back down one bit. And he uses uh, their attempted murder of him as an occasion for even more testimony to his deity, testimony to his Um, submission to the Father's will and everything that comes in this chapter. So that's where we're going to be here today. At least by faith, I believe that's where our slideshow is going to take us. Like I say, I have last week's notes sitting up here. That's all right. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. We haven't prayed yet. Am I correct? All right. A couple weeks ago, I tried to pray twice. So I've been I've been edgy ever since. All right. Well, let's pray once and uh, go to our study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we just celebrate how faithful you are, 
how uh, unworthy we are, and yet our sufficiency is from you. You provide the adequacy. You provide the merit. Our righteousness is your righteousness imputed to our account. And Father, the fact that we can assemble to get today in the name of Jesus Christ and receive instruction is a grace provision from you. We, we acknowledge your glory. We thank you for your grace provision. Father, we submit now humbly under your authority, asking, Father, that whatever elements of pride or selfishness, whatever hindrances there is to the, uh, to the study of your word, Father, wash those all aside. Take every thought captive. Uh, turn our eyes firmly upon your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. In this outline, we have four overall, well, five overall main points. And we'll have to skim through them because I don't have them charted out. <coughs> we started with point one to fix the context for this as the Enkania, uh, the uh, feast of rededication, the feast of what's today known as Hanukkah, and we did some Hanukkah studies under point one and its subpoints. Under point two, we evaluated the Jewish demands uh, that Jesus make a plain claim of being the Messiah. This was our study out of verse 24. 1024, let me get on the right page there. <coughs> the Jews then gathered round him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? How long will you lift up our soul? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And we did some study on that. They, uh, they weren't really interested in, in his claims of being the Christ. They just wanted his plain statement so they could convict him of blasphemy and put him to death. Which becomes clear when you see the remaining issues surrounding there. Thirdly, <coughs> Jesus reveals their unbelief in one of the most precious messages he ever gave. And this was the content of last week's message under main point three, verses 25 through 30. There were a total of five subpoints and some additional sub-subpoints under this, A, B, C, D, and E. And uh, I want to just return to one last item on there from last week, and then we'll be ready to move on into point four. But it is clear that his audience here is unbelieving. And he tells them in verse 25, you do not believe. That's an indicative mood statement. That is a statement of reality. Uh, they say, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly if you are the Christ. And Jesus answered them, I told you. He has been making messianic claims throughout his ministry. He's been making messianic claims when he says, I am the door. When he says, I am the good shepherd. When he says, I am the bread of heaven. He has been giving nothing but messianic claims, even while he's been revealing the Father from day one. He's been making messianic claims. How much more plain can you get than coming up out of the river Jordan and having the heavens opened and a voice from heaven saying, Behold, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I mean, that is an obvious testimony. So tell us plainly is a bit disingenuous. What they want is the statement, uh, I am the Christ, so that they can accuse him of blasphemy and, uh, and put him to death. That's their goal. Well, he says, I, d I told you and you do not believe. And then he goes on, the works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe. So neither the testimony nor the works. Twice is it stated that they do not believe. They do not believe. Well, he's revealing their unbelief. And he goes on in the context of their unbelief to describe how secure a believer truly is. The ones who do believe are held securely. They're held in the Father's hand. They're held in the Son's hand. You have double-handedness of security. And um, the unity, I think, is also a wonderful provision there because if uh, the Father and the Son are not united, intent on one purpose, you know, and, and, and so forth, then being held in the Father's hand and being held in the Son's hand could put you in a tug-of-war if they decide to rip you in half. <laughs> and, and go their separate ways, all right? Well, the, the security of being held in the Father's hand and held in the Son's hand, combined with I and the Father are one, shows you the unifying strength of double omnipotence that's holding you secure. And that's the message that he chooses to give to these unbelievers 
to unbelievers. All right. And you may uh, view this and say, you know what? This might be an interesting evangelism approach here uh, to use eternal security as a uh, as an evangelism message to those who do not believe. And uh, if uh, if you're led to do such a thing, then you may find that that's precisely the message that's needed in uh, in terms of where the father's drawing and where the Holy Spirit's convicting and uh, and things of that nature. Now, in, under this, uh, we saw some subpoints. So point A, they did not believe in spite of the message delivered and in spite of the miracles done. Uh, unanimous testimony that he was unlike any teacher they'd ever heard before. He was the greatest teacher of his day. And they testified over and over again. No one has ever spoken the word of God like this with authority, with power, with conviction, with confidence. The greatest teacher of their day, the greatest teacher ever. And uh, yet they did not believe in spite of the message. And then in spite of the miracles done, you take every miracle ever done by all the Old Testament prophets combined. (laughs) And Jesus was outperforming all of them put together. In just the sheer volume and magnitude and, and the nature of the miracles provided. Healing a man born blind. That had never been done before. And all the things. And you, th- you look back to uh, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah brought, two back to, uh, brought one back to life. Elisha brought two back to life. Remember, he had a double portion of Elijah's spirit. So Elijah raises one. Elisha raises two. And what does Jesus do? He raises three. See, and he's, he's just showing himself to be the pinnacle, the ultimate of God's Revelation. They did not believe in spite of the message delivered and in spite of the miracles done. They did not believe because they were not his sheep. And there's some things in there that deals with um, uh, our study in terms of election and volition and the things we're doing right now in soteriology. So you're actually going to get these concepts a couple of times. Thirdly, well, let me skip through some of these subpoints, or we'll be here all day reviewing last week. Let's skip by that. Jesus claims, I do like the fact, though, that Jesus claims shepherding ownership of his sheep. They are his sheep. He claims them. They are his, just as the Father claims you. You belong to the Father and you belong to the Son. And that's another aspect, too. He receives his sheep as a gift from the Father. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. The Father has given the sheep to Jesus Christ. And some of the, I I don't think people really think through the magnitude of what they're really saying when they're saying that they can lose their salvation. What they're saying is that the father can give, provide a gift to his son and then somehow revoke that or yank that back or cancel that or change his mind. The father would not do that to the son whom he loves. So our being a gift from the father to the son is really a remarkable doctrine. The third point of study came out of verse 28. Jesus Christ does three things for his sheep. Every sheep that God the Father gives to Jesus Christ, Jesus does these three things. He provides that sheep with eternal life. He uh, guarantees with a promise that that sheep will never perish. You say, well, isn't that the same thing? No, they're separate matters and they're listed here as two separate items in verse 28. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Both are true. They're not the same thing said in two different ways. They're two different realities, and I hope we can fully understand each one of them. And he promises to keep them securely held in his hand. Three promises for every sheep. Three promises for every sheep. So if you can lose your salvation, uh, then this is a three times lie that Jesus just because he promised eternal life, never to perish, and no one will snatch you from his hand. Of course, that's not the only hand you're held in. Point D, although the father gives the sheep to Jesus Christ, the father maintains a secure handhold. So he gives the sheep and Jesus Christ takes hold, but the father's not letting go. He gives, but shares custody of what he gives in the security of two hands holding us eternally in our redeemed estate. What a provision. Although the father gives the sheep to Jesus Christ, the father maintains a secure handhold. And it's a powerful powerful thing to be held in double handedness of our security now where we left off and ran out of time was in her point e i and the father are one i and the father are one and we wanted to understand this oneness and there's a distinction to be made in oneness in a variety of new testament applications and and i thought maybe we went through it so quickly last week that we weren't as solid because galatians 328 has an expression of oneness 
but it doesn't use the neuter gender, the hen. It uses the, the masculine gender. And we want to understand the difference there. Uh, because this neuter gender that's used here, I and the Father are one, one thing, one in the neuter. Now, Jesus is masculine. The Father is masculine. And so you would think that I and the Father are one uh, would use a masculine type. Uh, but it doesn't. It uses a neuter. There's a significance to that. In fact, I have read so many theological journal articles on this. It's, it's amazing the, the, the impact of this that has struck men like A.T. Robertson and, and Kenneth Wiest and so many of these New Testament scholars. It, it really has grabbed hold of their thinking. And so I was trying to share it with you. Um, the distinction in Galatians 3 is something else. It's not the oneness between the Father and the Son. And in Galatians 3, we're told there's no male or female, no slave or free, no Jew or Gentile. They're all one in Christ. And that shows a, a, an equality. That shows a, a unity of position between men and women in the church, uh, Jews and Gentiles, and, and so forth. There's no uh, discrimination in the body of Christ. We have a unity uh, of of a sort. We understand that. We, we've taught that. and We're clear on that. But it's different from the unity that the Father and the Son have together, which is one of essence, one of nature, one of mind, one of purpose. And that's the unity that they share and the unity we want to understand because that too is also made available for the church. And that's what uh, I want to try to stress again here this morning before we move on. Because when you turn over to chapter 17 of this same book, John 17:11, we find out that the same unity in a neuter singular number, hen, the number one in the neuter, hen, H-E-N, it's a neuter singular, the same terminology for the oneness of the Father and the Son is desired by Jesus Christ for His apostles. And he, so he says here, the, um, I am no longer in the world. Of course, this is the night in which he's betrayed. He's getting ready to go to the cross the very next day. And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we. That they may be one even as we. The same oneness that Jesus Christ affirmed in John 10.30, with I and the Father are one, is the same oneness that Jesus asks the Father to produce in the disciples here in John 17:11. Again, keep them, that's the imperative. He's giving the Father an imperative. Keep them in your name. What name is that? Which you have given me. And this is the, the uh, oh, there's a lot of doctrine in here. We'll study it out when we get to chapter 17. But the objective, there's a purpose clause, that. It's a purpose clause, also a clause of result. That they may be one even as we are. Even as we. The uh, wonderful provision is that the, the unity that the Son has with the Father is not limited to the Son. It starts with Him, but because we're in Christ, where are we then? One with the Father. The positional truth of the body and bride of Jesus Christ. We are one in Christ. And because we are in Christ, in Christo, we are in Christ. If He and the Father are one, what are we? One. That's right. In Christ, one with Christ, one with the Father. And that's nature, essence, purpose, substance, everything. The totality of the Father and the Son in us. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And, and sadly, I think... It's, it's, it's such a deep, deep doctrine. It's a mature doctrine to try to grasp it, apprehend it, make use of it. A lot of work that goes into that. What is oneness defined as? Same chapter. Say, well, what is this oneness? Oneness is defined as mutual reciprocal abiding. You see that in verse 21? And by the way, this is not limited to the 12, okay? Or to the 11. Judas, by this point, is gone out of the picture but um, it's not limited to the apostles of the lamb it's extended beyond them when he's talking about sanctifying them in the truth verse 20 says i do not ask on behalf of these alone but for those also who believe in me through their word 
In other words, he can't speak of the coming church age. That's still a mystery. And yet he is indicating that there will come followers after his departure that would become believers based upon apostolic ministry after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the church, just not can't use the terminology because church is still a mystery until, until Pentecost. So I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. In other words, we have a corporate body that is an organism, not an organization. The church is not a hierarchy organization. It's not a, it's not a, uh, you know, organization is what, get, what's, what gets emphasized here on earth. And there's the Roman Episcopal organization called the papacy there's protestant organizations there's all kinds of organizations the church is an is an organism not an organization we are a body an organic body an organism in christ and we have that unity that they may be one even as you father what was the organy uh the organism unity of israel was there one were they one body in now, they were all baptized into Moses, but they are not described as being uh, in Moses. They weren't described as being in the sphere of Moses or being uh, one body in Moses kind of a thing. They were 12 tribes. They were a, an earthly people. We're a heavenly people. We're a organiza- uh, an organism, a body. Anyway, it's not just the 12. It's all of us. It's the church, the church universal that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. There's mutual, reciprocal abiding. I in you and you in me. That they also may be in us. We understand in Christ. You're in Christ the moment of your salvation. You're also in Father because you're in Christ. And how does your position in Father, how does that affect your priesthood? your ambassadorship, and your soldier function? Do you ever consider being in Father in any of your uh, operational functions of the Christian way of life? Or is everything kind of centered on being in Christ? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to minimize in Christ. I'm trying to expand beyond in Christ to understand both in Christ and in Father. All right? Please don't get me wrong. I had a man leave the church once because I talked about the Father too much. I didn't have enough Jesus in our teaching. I don't want to minimize in Christ. All right. I love my Savior. I love Jesus. But in Christ also produces in Father. And I want to understand them both. And I want to apply both. Because I have blessings that are directly attached with being in Christ and blessings that are directly attached to being in Father. And I never understood the totality of this until fairly recently. I want to understand what are the in Father blessings? And, and should we branch out besides, I mean, we just lump 36 things or 39 things and we just kind of lump them all together as being in Christ. But should some of them more be understood as being in Father? And how does that work? All right. You are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the word world may believe that you sent me. There's a testimony. We have a testimony opportunity to this cosmos And your testimony will never be stronger than when you're identifying with the Father and with the Son. All right? You know, you can identify with a a little no significant uh, Bible church on Woodrow Avenue. That's one thing. What kind of testimony do you have in the world? You can identify with a a Roman church, identify with a Lutheran church, identify with an organization as a witness to the world. Or you can identify to the Father and the Son as a testimony to the world. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. Oneness is defined as mutual reciprocal abiding, mutual reciprocal glorification. That's the very next verse. Verse 22. And the fellowship of the Father and Son for a witness to the cosmos. That's verse 23, combined with 1 John 1. Notice verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Glory is inseparable from oneness. If we get sidetracked and you and I start getting fixated on earthly glory, we've lost track of our unity with the Father and the Son. And how many believers do you know that are all wrapped up in earthly glory? Health, money, fame, achievements, everything that can be done in this cosmos. 
that you can look back with achievement and pride and say, I did that, I did that. Earthly glory is not oneness with the Father and with the Son. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. So oneness has mutual reciprocal abiding, mutual reciprocal glorification, and the fellowship of the Father and Son. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Perfected in unity. You know, in terms of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that's basics. The indwelling of Christ, you start getting into more intermediate doctrine, but the indwelling of the Father, mature doctrine. That's what's going to perfect you in unity. So that the cosmos may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You are a sent one from the Father. You're sent from the Father. You're sent from the Son. You and I are commanded to be ambassadors to this lost and dying world. It's been committed to us, the ministry of reconciliation. We beg the inhabitants of this world to be reconciled to God on behalf of Christ. So here's your oneness. Mutual reciprocal abiding, mutual reciprocal glorification, and the fellowship of the Father and the Son for the witness to the cosmos. There's a lot there. A lot there. All right. Well, let's move on then. Main point four. Fourth thing we want to get out of John 10. Even as the Jews attempted to murder him, Jesus repeated his message in even stronger terms. He didn't back down. Even as the Jews attempted to murder him. (laughs) You know, I mean, think how tempting it is to say, all right, forget it then. Drop dead. Take a hike. I'm out of here. Picking up stones to kill me. All right. You had your chance. I'm gone. There were other occasions he did that. Not this occasion. This occasion he stays for a second round. A second shot at him. And you wonder why. Well, why was he led to do this? The text doesn't say, but the Father will lead you to either depart, you know, shake the dust off your feet and move on, or maybe give somebody a second hearing. As far as that goes. My buddy out here in prison I go visit once a month. He, uh, that's how he got saved. Because the evangelist that led him to Christ had enough grace and mercy and love to go to him a second time after he'd already rejected it the first time. And it's a powerful witness there. So he sticks around a second time. Even as the Jews attempted to murder him, Jesus repeated his message in even stronger terms. So I and the Father are one. They want to kill him. And he stops them. He's going to get forceful with them in this message. Let's look at it. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you stoning me? (laughs) I love this. This is sanctified sarcasm right here. This is, (laughs) and my my human personality really finds harmony in in such humor. The, um, I did many good works. I turned water to wine, I walked on water, I gave the blind sight, I I raised the dead. I I mean, I've done all these miracles. I fed 5,000. You know, all these things he's done up till now. And which one was it exactly that that you're going to stone me for? (laughs) I love it. It's wonderful. Well, obviously, the Jews answered him, for a good work, we do not stone you. We're not stoning you because of your miracles. We're not stoning you for your good works. And yet, what did they just admit? When they said that, what did they just admit? He's doing good works. And how could he possibly do that if he was not sent from the Father? This was their conundrum. This is what, even in the previous chapter, in John chapter 9, they could not deny it. They said, what are we going to do? It's evident that God has done this mighty thing through him by healing the man born blind in in the the previous chapter, John chapter 9. And so, even um, if you just want to spot it real quickly, it's back in chapter 9 and and even on into chapter 10, they still were having problems with it. In 10.21, the others were saying, these aren't the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And they really could not deny 
the miracles. And uh, back in chapter 9, they were debating among themselves, what are we going to do? We can't deny that, uh, that a miracle has been done here. So, um, verse 16, I'm looking at in chapter 9. Some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Clearly, he was doing the works of God. <laughs> and so uh, they have to question him. They have to question his parents. And, and they, uh, they're afraid to say anything because they know that if they testify to the Christ, then, uh, then uh, they're going to get cast out of the synagogue. Anyway, that's... Uh, this is the predicament they are finding themselves in. How are they going to stop him? Because too many are following after him. These miracles are undeniable. All right, back to chapter 10 then. Um, rhetorical question or sarcastic question. Uh, you know, would you please point out for me which miracle it is you're, you're stoning me for? And they said, nope, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. For blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out... To be God. See, they had no doubts that when he said, I and the Father are one, he was making his claim to deity. There was no question. They knew what he was claiming. Equality with the Father. Full deity. Remember, Jesus Christ is undiminished deity as well as true humanity united together in one person forever. <clears throat> and uh, to claim to be God. Now, to be claimed to be God when you're not God. <laughs> okay. That's not right. That's not right. And uh, in terms of blasphemy, what defines blasphemy and so forth, is worthy of study. But of course, his claim is true, which means it's not blasphemy. And even though his claim is true, there are actually other claims that are less true than his or that are less uh, glorious than his, I should say. And... There are angels that are called gods as well. And that's what he uses. He uses a quotation from Psalm 82. The mightiest of all created angels are called Elohim. El in the singular, Elohim in the plural. And the mightiest of all the angelic beings are called Elohim. They're called gods. And Jesus rightly points out. He says that Yahweh... The Lord God of Israel called these created beings, called them gods. Is the scripture true? Are they gods? Then why is my claim so outrageous? Since I'm higher than them. <laughs> okay, and this is the, the logic of it. Well, we'll break it down for you here in a moment. Um, so they're not stoning him for the miracles. They're stoning him for the blasphemy. In the blasphemy they're defining as being a man, an anthropos, that he's making himself out to be Thaos, making himself out to be God. But Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. That comes out of Psalms, not the Torah law that we understand, but that's not a problem. The whole Old Testament is called Torah, called law. Whether or not it's Pentateuch or not doesn't is not... Strictly necessary. It has it not been written in your law. I said you are gods. And we'll look at Psalm 82 here this morning. And I don't know how long it'll take us to go through that. But note, here's the logic now. Verse 35. If. If. And he did. He called them gods. And he did. To whom the word of God came. As he was speaking to them. Face to face. Verbally. And the scripture cannot be broken. Okay. If God called them gods. And Scripture cannot be broken. Not only did he say it to them verbally, but then it was inspired in the text of Psalm 82. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If he told that audience assembled, the assembly of the holy ones, the solemn assembly, or would ultimately the divine council of the heavenly places, if he tells the top tier of the entire angelic realm of creation, if he calls them gods, why is it so blasphemous for the Son of God to claim such title? 
And logically, there's no blasphemy about it. It's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> there's no, no problem there. So do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? See, which of the angels did he ever sanctify and send into the world? Which of the angels did he ever say, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased? None of them. Only to Jesus Christ, only to God the Son, only to second member of Trinity, only to his beloved son did he ever sanctify and send into the cosmos. Not one of the of the uh, Elohim addressed there in Psalm 82, not one of the angel gods, if you want to call them that, not one of the lesser gods. And if this makes you uncomfortable, relax. We'll we'll spell it all out for you. We're not becoming polytheistic here. Okay? We gotta we gotta learn how to relax over the term God. If you want to use a lowercase G, then that might soothe your conscience too. Um, because there's only one Almighty, only one Supreme. And we recognize that. He is unique. He is the only begotten. And he is has to be exalted above even the highest of the angelic beings, which are the Elohim, the gods of that realm. All right, well, let's spell it out then, point by point. Subpoint A, oneness with the Father was a blasphemous claim of deity. Now, I put blasphemous in quotes because for him it was true, therefore it's not blasphemy. Okay? If an unbeliever would have made such a claim, well, then yeah. But oneness with the Father was a, quote-unquote, blasphemous claim of deity which Mosaic law observant religious Jews could not tolerate. Now, recognize this is the audience we're dealing with, the Jews. Mosaic law observant religious Jews. Hoi Yudayoi, very frequently in the Gospel of John. We're talking about the religious observant Jews. And by religious observant, what did that mean? Does that mean they were saved? Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Some of them were, some of them weren't. Nicodemus wasn't. And he was one of the most devout, religiously observant, nomocratic, law-abiding Jews. See, the religious structure of this generation was following the teachings of the rabbis, following the teachings of the Pharisees, following the teachings of the scribes, following what to them was their law. And yet, the Lord of the Sabbath shows up and he's not in conformity with their definition of Sabbath, was he? In their, in their law, he was a Sabbath breaker. Right? But he was Lord of the Sabbath. How's he a Sabbath breaker? Well, he was their Sabbath breaker. According to their definition of Sabbath. We gave you this definition a few weeks ago. <clears throat> the definition of Jews. And it's very common in uh, John and in the other Gospels called the Jews. In fact, a lot of texts like to capitalize the J, the Jews. Okay? And that's a technical term. We understand that. I mean, they're all Jews. Jesus is a Jew. His disciples are Jews. Jewish racially. All right? But when you encounter the Jews, specifically in the Gospel of John here, as a political group, as a religious group, we're talking about the religious leaders. We're talking about the devout, what I call Mosaic Law observant religious Jews. Same thing happens today, by the way. You've got observant, non-observant Jewish people in Israel. You've got secular Jews. They're, they're racially Jewish. They live in Israel. They don't observe the feasts. They don't pay much attention to the Torah. They don't get all wrapped up about Hanukkah or Passover or things like that. They're just secular Jewish people living in the state of Israel today. They're not observant. His uh, detractors and adversaries throughout the Gospel of John are the Jews. Capital letter J, the religious observant Jews. I call them nomocratic, not theocratic. They weren't under the rule of God in terms of a theocracy. They were nomocratic under the power of the law. And they had seized that power for themselves in order to control others. Nomocratic. And Jesus uh, nails them. He even uses the term law here. Has it not been written in your law? 
And remember, I mean, this is this is hard for them to swallow. It's like when he told them earlier, he says, I'm not the one that condemns you. The one that condemns you is Moses. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's about as offensive thing as he could have told them. I mean, Moses was their idol. Moses was their was their legend, their hero. As far as that goes, they seated themselves in the throne of Moses, in the seat of Moses. Well, these religious Jews could not tolerate his blasphemy. Could not tolerate claims of unity with the Father. Not only is it here in verse 31 and verse 33, you see they picked up stones to stone him and it was for their blasphemy, making himself out to be God. And he's encountered it before. Chapter 5:18, chapter 8 and verse 59. John 5:18. He says, uh, let's see, they were persecuting him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He healed that man on the pallet and told him to carry his pallet home. And um, they didn't like that. And uh, But he answered them, my father is working until now. I myself am working. And what do they do? For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That was blasphemy in their mind. They could not accept it. He had to die because of his blasphemy. Likewise, in chapter 8, and verse 59, he says, uh, they said, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? This is why I think Jesus was closer to 40 than 30. Because they didn't say, you're not yet 40 years old. They said, you're not yet 50 years old. And if he was born in 7 B.C. and he dies in uh, 33 A.D., then that makes him 40 at the point of the cross. He didn't have the ravages of sin to tear his body down and make him look older, but he had 12 knucklehead disciples, and I think that probably aged him quite a bit. Plus his unbelieving brothers and his mom interrupting him in the middle of Bible class. He probably looked like he was pushing 50. <laughs> You're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Amen, amen. Lego, so I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Seven times more. He keeps uttering, I am. He's using the covenant language of Yahweh over and over and over again. And they have the nerve to say, tell us plainly if you're the Christ. How many Yahweh statements has he been making? Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So we've seen repeatedly they're going to stone him, they're going to stone him, they're going to stone him. Now, on this occasion, he actually stops. And instead of, you know, teleporting out of there, however the miracle was done, he uh, stays and he uses some sarcasm and he teaches them and he asks them a question and he has a final message and then he disappears, right? When they're trying to lay hold of him. Um, there's a reason for that. Yeah, I, th I think it shows a, a, an extra mile. He's giving the shirt off his back. He's walking the extra mile. He's delaying in the midst of their stoning him in order to give one more message. And maybe there was one more person there that was going to hear. And uh, later on, remember back to this conversation. Well, the Jews couldn't tolerate this. I and the Father are one. Are you kidding me? The Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is their great Shema. This is their great uh, statement, their, their confession, their testimony. They recite it by memory. Out of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is our Elohim. Yahweh is our Elohim. Keep that vocabulary in mind because we're going to see it here shortly. Yahweh is one. Yahweh is one. Well, it's really interesting. You ever study Yahweh? You ever study all of the Old Testament appearances of Yahweh? Because in many of them, from a New Testament hindsight perspective, we look back and we say, well, that's God the Father. And many of them, again, with a New Testament hindsight looking back, we say, oh, that's, that's God the Son. And then in many of them, with New Testament hindsight looking back, we can't really tell. Is that the Father or is that the Son or is that both? 
Yahweh is both the Father and the Son. Depending on context, depending on what's being emphasized in any one particular text, that's not to diminish the Holy Spirit or say He's not truly God or not part of Trinity, but what I'm saying is Father and Son specifically have a unity. And yes, to the exclusion of the Holy Spirit, He spotlights both Father and Son. Father and Son have a unity of oneness. I and the Father are one. And that is in such harmony with the Shema statement here, the, the uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 statement, Yahweh, your Elohim, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Father and Son, united in purpose, intent in one purpose. We'll have some more to say on that here in a moment. Because the role of the Father, the Most High, and the Son, and their oneness as they reign is, uh, is fundamental. We need to understand that. Well, oneness was blasphemy as far as the religious Jews were concerned. That's neat. There it is. <laughs> I took a quote from Tom Constable here. I really appreciate what he had to say in his uh, study notes on this text. The reader should realize by now that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. The reader. What reader? The reader of the Gospel of John. Okay? Going chapter by chapter by chapter. No one has seen the Father at any time in chapter 1, but the Son is revealing the Father. And chapter by chapter by chapter, the reader of the Gospel of John can have no illusions about who Jesus Christ is. He is the Son of God. He is the, uh, God in the flesh. He is our Savior. The reader should realize by now that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be, one with the Father and more than a mere mortal. A man was not making himself out to be God, but God had made himself a man. I love that. I thought that was so uh, precise. Tom Constable taught at Dallas Seminary for decades, and uh, his class notes were then compiled into what effectively becomes a commentary then because he had class notes on virtually every chapter, every verse of the, of the Bible by the time he was done. And so, uh, yes, a man was not making himself out to be God. God had made himself a man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. John 1.18. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has exegeted him. And, of course, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All right. So, it was blasphemy to the, to the Jews. And Jesus takes the time to teach some more. Jesus employed sarcastic rhetoric. Jesus employed sarcastic rhetoric. What the Greeks would call irony or Socratic irony in his device. It's a rhetorical device. And he employs it. It's, uh, it's a wonderful illustration technique. It's a wonderful instruction technique. It's where effectively you play dumb and you ask questions. It's kind of like um, Columbo. You know? You just act like you're an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. You just kind of start asking questions and they answer the questions. And in the process of answering the questions you realize, that, oh, he really knew all along where he was going with this. And they hang themselves in their own, uh, in their own testimony. So he's, which miracle is it here that uh, you're stoning me for? Acting like he's ignorant of what's going on and asking them to answer some questions. Jesus employed sarcastic rhetoric and exegetical teaching. He takes them back to Psalm 82. He quotes the Scriptures and says, Answer that before you stone me. And they don't have an answer. <laughs> they don't have an answer. Exegetical teaching in the face of their intended execution. Verse 32 and verse 34. And, and so, you know, this is... It's, it's effective. You can do the same thing. If you're uh, witnessing or you're dealing with a skeptic, a Bible skeptic or whatever, I mean, you can just start asking them questions. Well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Oh, really? You just start asking them questions. Well, why do you think such and such? Really? 
And and you don't have to stomp on them or, you know, come down on them and just say, well, you know, you're an idiot or you're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. Just keep asking questions. And then if they say something you know to be wrong, you just, oh, really? <laughs> Is that what you believe? Hmm. I had never thought of it that way. Right. Or say, well, what about this verse? What about this verse? And then leave it. I'm going to have to think about that. Really? You think that? You think Jesus only died for the elect? Hmm, well, what about not for our sins only, but also for the whole world? Really? And, and then you just leave it with them and let them chew on it. And they can handle the scriptures. Or the scriptures can handle them. See? And you just go away. All right. And, uh, and deal with, uh, just leave them in the hands of God. Leave them with the scriptures. Sarcastic rhetoric either, or Sar- Sar- Socratic irony and exegetical teaching in the face of their intended execution. His passage was Psalm 82.6. You are God's. The exegetical passage was Psalm 82.6. See, as, as full of hatred as they were, their, um, the, the Scriptures were unbreakable, undeniable. It was an authoritative witness. In their pride, they had to admit, if it's in the Bible, it's in the Bible. They had to admit that. Okay? And this is where I've been effective in, in talking to Roman Catholics. And their, their church says one thing, but the Bible says this. Well, deal with it. It's in the Bible. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? The exegetical passage was Psalm 82.6. I myself have said, you are God's. I myself, and, and, or I have said, I myself have said. The I is emphatic because the I is not necessary. The uh, Hebrew, ani amerti. The ani, LaRosa can read this, ani amerti. Now, amer is the verb to say. The T prefix here on the end of it is your first person singular. That's the I. Okay? Highly inflected language like Spanish or a lot of inflected languages. You have a prefix, you have a suffix on the end of it that tells you who's speaking. Because Amer by itself is just simply third person singular. He speaks. So it's not he said, you are gods. I said, you are gods. It's Amerti. Amerti. And what I'm trying to highlight for you, this may bore you to tears, but understand this. Because, do I need to change colors? Because this T is here, the suffix is attached on the end of that. That suffix means I. I have said. I have said. Okay? It's like uh, in Espanol. You have the verb hablar. And if it's me speaking, then it's hablo. Right? Yo hablo. But I don't have to have the yo on there, right? I don't need the yo on there. Because if all I say is hablo, what does that mean? It means I say. I'm speaking. Okay? Now, if I say yo hablo, now I've just emphatically highlighted yo. I've highlighted I. This is not necessary. When it's not necessary, its presence spotlights itself. And so the fact that the T is there makes this a knee right up here very noteworthy. Very noteworthy. I, I myself have said. And I don't mind the English translation of I myself because I think the redundancy is intrinsic to the pronoun and the, uh, and the uh, pronominal suffix, uh, the suffix there at the end of Amer. So, ani amerti. I myself have said, Elohim atem. Elohim atem. God's you are. I myself have said, Elohim Atem, you are gods. You are Elohim. Now he's talking to a plural group. Let's, let's go back here to Psalm 82. We didn't get as far as I thought we'd get today. That's all right. Psalm 82, because this is significant. This is, by the way, as we proceed in our Second Corinthians series, We are going to be finding ourselves into realms of Scripture that are going to uh, develop a pretty comprehensive angelology. And Psalm 82 is a fundamental angelology passage. God 
takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the gods. Maybe you have rulers there or judges or some other weasley, pansy, incorrect English term. Publishers are scared of Elohim, gods, plural. But that's what the verse says. You don't have to be scared of anything. It's in the Bible. It's, it's not to be scared of. You've got to deal with it. Live it, love it, learn it. God, and this is the wonderful thing about Elohim. Elohim is used as a singular noun when it's talking about the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. Elohim is a singular noun when it's talking about the real God, the ultimate, absolute, supreme being. But Elohim is also a plural noun when it is speaking of other gods besides God. And you go, there are no other gods besides God. He's the only God. We're, what are you, polytheistic? No, we're monotheistic in the sense of one uncreated, eternal, I am supreme being. But there are multiple gods that are not eternal, self-existent, uncreated beings. They're all created. Every other God besides God is created. So we're going to relax about that. But I want to make sure we're clear on this. Maybe it's beyond what we need to do here in John 10, but it is going to be a worthwhile study to understand who these other gods are. Keep in mind, there are other gods. All right? You okay with that? They're, They're called gods. They're called Elohim. They're not supreme beings. They're not creators. They're created beings. But they are called gods. They are beings of divine power. And as such, they are gods. Maybe some of it is just simply the limitations of our English language. The fact that we use God with a capital G to refer to the one and only. And we don't like using the the word God unless we give it a lowercase g for some of these phonies and posers. But we need to understand that There are legitimate gods beyond the phonies and posers, and the the phonies and posers are also gods. Before they fell, and after their fallen status, Satan is the god of this age. He's a god. As long as you adapt to the terminology, then you don't forsake your monotheism. Okay? (laughs) So, but keep in mind, he is the god of gods. That's one of his titles the Lord of Lords and God of Gods. If there aren't any other gods, then that means he's the God of nothing. We know he's not the God of nothing. He's the God of Gods. Who are these gods? Well, they're introduced for us here in Psalm 82. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? He actually has a rebuke for these fallen gods. And... um, They were not vindicating the weak and fatherless. They were not doing justice to the afflicted and the destitute. They were not rescuing the weak and the needy. I think this is a rebuke of the angelic dispensation prior to Adam and their failure to accomplish that which they were assigned to do. They do not know nor they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. When the angels rebelled in their stewardship and came under judgment, The very foundations of the earth were shaken and the whole world, of course, became tohu wabohu in uh, in that destruction. I said, you are gods. All of you are sons of the Most High. Remember, there's a division of the angels that are called the B'nai Ha'elohim, the sons of gods, the sons of the gods. And they they show up in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 and Job 38. Other places, Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God... um, took uh, the daughters of men and, and made babies with them and things there. You are gods. You are sons of the Most High. B'nai ha'elyon. He is El Elyon, the Most High God. Nevertheless, you will die like men. You will die like men. Their judgment was eternal death and separation in the lake of fire. That's the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. They're going to die like men. That right there tells you that the recipients of this message are not men. How could he tell, if he's speaking to human beings, how can he tell human beings, you're going to die like human beings? (laughs) That's not a punishment. 
But if you tell God's Elohim, spirit realm angels of the highest order, that they're going to die like human beings, ah, now that's a wrath. That's a judgment. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possess all the nations. Well, goodness, I thought we'd get further than this. Um, Okay, we'll do no review next week whatsoever. We're going to come back and we're going to open in prayer and we're going to return to Psalm 82. And we're going to spell out these Elohim because we need to understand there's only one uncreated, eternally self-existent I am. Okay, don't get me wrong. Only God is uncreated, eternally self-existent I am. There's only one. That's the one true God, the Almighty, the El Elyon. Okay, don't get me wrong. All these other gods are created beings, angelic beings of immense power, which is why they're called El or Elohim. El is singular, Elohim is plural. All right. Thank you, Father, for this truth. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this study. Thank you for the, uh, the shipment this morning. For the remainder of our readers, it is a grace provision, and we just praise your name for all that you've done. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.